It's Moseyo Nijesi Robredo Podcast. I'm Joan. Our discussion today is part one of Katalinkasan Ruminations on Independence and the Philippine Revolution in Bicol. With the topic discussion titled, A Friar's Account of Philippine Revolutions. Our speaker is Father Francis A. Tordilla of Archdiocese of Cáceres. Good morning. So it's a it's a lovely day to be with all of you, and uh, most especially thank you for Museo and Jesse Robredo for uh, hosting this event. And of course, uh, together with our group, SciSci Bicol, we are very much happy to share and contribute into this discussion. Well, my talk is about Friar's account of the Philippine Revolution, downscaling the grand narratives of the revolution. So the center, the central topic of my talk this morning will be on one written account of a friar during the time of the Philippine Revolution of uh, 1898. And probably you have read the abstract of, of this talk, which states to discover the rich texture and drama of a micro experience against a backdrop of big and generalized uh, causal narratives of Philippine independence. So this is a sincere uh, invitation to our viewers to reflect a bit on how we have learned our history. Supposedly, this talks would, uh, would have been conducted during the Philippine Independence Day, but for some reasons, well, aside from reflecting on Katalinkasan or freedom, this is also a sincere invitation to our viewers to reflect on a bit on how we have learned our history. Uh, chances are either we have been taught history by making us memorize dates uh, with the corresponding events, you know, the, the type of memorization, and we hated all this style. Or some teacher narrated to us the events in a particular era or probably a in a particular um, date or period, as if we are listening to Lola Bashang and we we sat at the foot of the Lola and then the Lola started narrating all these events and we will be mesmerized with all the amazing stories that the Lola would uh, be uh, would be sharing to us. A good history, I do believe, should lead us back to the sources. A good history teacher would be someone who will take us to the found of or wellspring of knowledge and teach us how to drink from that source. A good history, in my opinion, would be someone who will take you back to the sources and really uh, teach you how to drink from that source, you know, teaching you all the methods on how to read, contextualize, you know, document analysis, what was the context, uh, who is the author. So that's how I think uh, history should be taught. And so anyway, today I would, I would try to be a good history teacher or a fellow student probably by bringing you all back to just one source. And that is the friar's account of the Philippine revolution. We may ask ourselves, is one source enough? Well, of course it is not enough to explain the whole event of the Philippine revolution. It's a complex event, but this is not our objective. Uh, that is to explain exhaustively the revolution. Rather, we will be reading a written testimony of somebody who saw and experienced for himself the revolution in any place, but here in Bicol. And so in short, we would be doing a sort of what I may term as a micro history. Why a micro history? Well, in a personal note, 
I'm trying, uh, I'm trying to dive into a new territory. You know, I've been um, trained to, uh, for the past few years when I studied in Rome, I was trained to do uh, my dissertation under the inspiration of a German sociologist like uh, Niklas Luhmann, who is, of course, the architect of the systems theory. And when we talk about systems theory, we are talking about a super theory that would explain the society, how the society is composed of different systems like law, economics, religion, communications, you know, this closed system trying to interact with one another, but operating in that their own ambit of influence. And um, therefore, it is a sort of a macro uh, view of the society or probably a macro view of a chosen event or phenomenon. So in short, I'm accustomed to doing history from the big uh, scale or big perspective. However, I've also experienced during my stay in Italy, there were historians who were very fond of what they called micro storia, or in our uh, in English that would be micro history, obviously. So micro storia, and so as a discipline, I think micro history is that genre of history that focuses on small units of research, such as an event. Like for our case, it would be about the Philippine Revolution. But in a particular community, the Bicolano community, and of a particular individual, this time it is an account, a written account of a friar uh, or a settlement, of course. The most distinctive aspect of microhistorical approach is the small scale of investigation. And so this morning we will be talking about just one uh, document, but you know, try to work our way around into that document by examining its context how it was written, when was that written, who wrote it. And so more or less, um, the individual micro-historical works will be concerned frequently with little people, you know, the insignificant people. Well, nobody knew, for example, the author of this friar's account. No? Uh, it, was, uh, um, it was found, of course, in, a, um, in, an, in our archives in Spain, but nobody knew about this account for, uh, for uh, several centuries or for a century, sorry. So the point of view of the researcher here in microhistory becomes part of the account of microhistory. Usually when we do history, the, the first person becomes invisible. It is as if you are narrating how it happened, how it happened originally. When in fact you are hiding yourself, the invisible first person through your writing. But in this microhistory, the point of view of the researcher becomes part of the account of microhistory. So in microhistory, it's not, it's not a taboo to say, I have experienced this, I saw this, I experienced this. So in the case of this friar, he saw what happened in Bicol during the Philippine Revolution, and he wrote about it. Microhistory can also be used in the interaction of the elite and popular culture. So we have been so accustomed with... Um, Philippine history being explained to us in the macro level, you know, the causes, uh, the causes and reasons why this revolution happened, all the factors leading to that revolution. But uh, I think not everyone is paying to the attention of the micro levels of this history. And so I think this is a good opportunity to do that. And on the second level, as a discipline, uh, sorry, uh, in Philippine history, according to the Jesuit historian, Father John Schumacher, 
among the many aspects of Philippine history which need research on the regional and local level, the history of the revolution is notable. Since the revolution had its start in the Tagalog provinces, and since the government of the republic was to be found there, you know, the Malolos Republic, it was perhaps inevitable that such earlier histories of the revolution should center their attention there. What is more, however, the tendency has also been to assume that in other regions, the causes of the revolution and the attitudes of people toward nationalism were substantially identical with those of the Tagalog region. If we have seen the Tagalog uh, version of the Philippine Revolution, it is assumed by many that we have seen the Philippine Revolution. So I think Father uh, Schumacher would uh, point to us, we need to examine it from the regional or local level. And that is precisely what we are doing uh, here today. Now, let's go to the Friars account. Let's ask him the question, what is it? When was it written? And who wrote it? What is it? So this account by one of the Franciscan friars who suffered imprisonment by the revolutionaries provides much information on certain aspect of the revolution in Camarines Norte and of course here in Naga or then called Nueva Cáceres. So it is an eyewitness testimony. Kumbaga sa ebidensya, medyo matimbang ini because it is an eyewitness account. In the court of law, this is not a hearsay, but rather a, a testimony, a first-hand testimony. What is the materiality of, uh, of this account? Well, it is, a, it is a volume. That means it is composed of several uh, papers, folietos or cuadernillos, measuring about 21 by 15 centimeters. And it is composed of four cuadernillos or small brochures or notebooks or papers are folded. Of course, when you go to the archives, you'll be able to find this. They are neatly folded into several sections. And uh, we can trace that the, even the paper uh, is taken from the Libreria y Papeles, y Papeleria uh, in Magallanes in Manila. So it consists of about six flyleaves and 273 pages and some 18 unnumbered pages. Its original title is La Revolución en la Provincia de Ambos Camarines. So it basically really talks about what happened here in Ambos Camarines. And, well, the content are arranged in two parts. The first part uh, talks about the revolution in Daet. Uh, that's from pages 1 to 92. And the second part, uh, the revolution of Nueva Cáceres, um, consisting of pages 93 to 259. And included with these two parts are the appendix, the appendices. Okay. So when was it written? Well, obviously... It was written during the Philippine Revolution, so from 1898 to 1900. And we may ask ourselves who wrote it. There you go. Uh, the picture that is uh, shown here is not an accurate picture because I could not find the picture of the author. So it is beyond doubt that the author himself is an actual witness in the majority of the deeds as, and he narrates, and of the rest, he refers to them as received from other witnesses. So here's one narrating what happened in the Philippine Revolution in Ambos Camarines, at the same time when, if it is not his own experience, he would always uh, tell or relate in his account. The document was found in Cajon Numero 23, uh, labeled uh, Por el Padre Fray Marcos Gomez. So the author is Fray Marcos Gomez. So he's a Franciscan friar. And according to the manuscript, 
of another Franciscan friar of the same uh, of the same year, Fray uh, Jesus Sierra. So Father uh, Fray uh, Marcos Gomez was one of the 22 Franciscans held prisoners by the insurgents in Bicol. His full name is Father Marcos Gomez Almonatil y Garcia del Alamo. He was born in the province of Toledo in September 8, 1872. He would be 10 years old in the revolution. So in 1872, December 19, 1872, and he received the Franciscan habit in Pastrana, Guadalajara on September 8, 1888. So all the eights are there. So, si mga mapakasal, gusto na September 8, 888. And so, well, he made his religious profession on September 8 of the following year, 1889. And his sacerdotal ordination took place on August 30, 1896. So he was barely two years in the priesthood when the Philippine Revolution uh, happened. In 1896, September 9, he went to Barcelona in order to embark for uh, the Philippines as a missionary, as a missionary on the 28th mission of the colleges. So he arrived here in Manila on the 16th of October, uh, 1896. And based on the records of the Franciscans, they have this uh, record called Estado General de la Provincia de San Gregorio Magno. He stayed at the convent of Nuestra Señora de los Angeles in Manila until 1897. So that would be the following year. He arrived 1896 and then he stayed in Manila in a convent in 1897. And on October 24, 1897, he received an order to go to Indan in Camarines Norte to study the Tagalog language in the company of of a certain Father Turibio or Fray Turibio Martinez. So you see here the missionary methods employed during those times, even during the late 19th century. The friars would really immerse themselves and get to know the culture starting from the languages. He was assigned to learn the Tagalog language. If you want to evangelize people, you have to learn their culture as well as their language. So the next two years of his life will be spent on narrating to us his experience. Starting from that small town in Indan, Camarines Norte, until the revolutionaries came, the insurgents came. And of the 65 Franciscans in Ambos Camarines in Albay, 22 Franciscans were imprisoned according to the memoir of Fray Gomez. So after the war, that would be around 1900, he would return to Manila on March 16. And despite his harrowing experience of the revolution, he was one of the few who, instead of Going back to their country or soliciting repatriation, he opted to stay here in the Philippines, most especially. And he stayed in Manila for some time, acting as a monastic preacher in Nuestra Señora de los Ángeles de Manila. And then on March 25, 1904, four years after he went back to Manila, he was assigned in Catbalogan, Samar. He went to Samar. And then, so probably he also learned Waray Waray, uh, not only Tagalog. And so later on to Paranas, uh, his new assignment as the interim president of the convent there, at the same time, the parish priest. And in Paranas, now it's called Wright, uh, the name of the town is Wright. He, he stayed there as a parish priest for 15 to 20 years, imagine. So even after experiencing the revolution here in Bicol, he opted to, to stay. That is uh, the life of Fray Gomez. And he, he would die on June 29, 1930. Uh, because he would receive several other appointments after that. 
he was one of those friars who opted to stay in here in the Philippines to attend to the spiritual needs of the people. As he wrote in his memoir or his in account, uh, he felt the need that the, he felt the needs of the people. So he would not abandon them. He would rather sacrifice his liberty and even his own life for the people. So that's coming from uh, Fray Gomez. Um, of course, that was written uh, in 1890 to 1900. Okay, so what are the three insights? I'd like to share three insights from the account based on my reading. Well, number one, it, it shows that revolutions are not romantic at all. You know, uh, people, probably the, the, the generations kind of would think of revolution as it's poster. It's meant to be, uh, meant, uh, meant to be uh, reproduced in posters. You see people uh, carrying you know, arms or weapons, and then you know the flag flying high. I enjoyed reading Fray uh, Gomez's account of the revolution. At some point, it would have, it could be as exciting as you know watching a recent popular flick in Netflix. You know how how Fray Gomez narrated the whole thing. It's really interesting. It's like uh, watching a suspense movie or a thriller. And of course, there were extreme emotions of joy, tears, and all the strong emotions that are, are that are present. Not all details will be important, as one historian would tell us, um, like William uh, Sewell Jr., a historian, said, we should be able to distinguish between events and historical events. So not all details would be important. So it's up to the reader to distinguish which one is really historical, which one are, are really you know, worth note-taking. So because historical events would resonate uh, a sort of a, a substantial change in, in the society. They would more or less somehow transform the very structures of daily life. That's how probably we could distinguish the events and the historical events. So if we would read back into the, um, into the uh, written account of Fray Gomez, so we, we would discover that the diet uprising was not really the revolution itself. There was an uprising in, in diet, Camarines Narte. Um, although Diet would be the first place in vehicle to surrender to the revolutionaries, but the early efforts were, weren't that successful. So as going back to the account, he would term the insurgents as the monsters of the revolution. Of course, he would label these revolutionaries as monsters of the revolution. The problem here with the revolutionaries in Camarines Norte was that they were not prudent enough to hide their conspiracy. You know, as, as he would critique or even criticize the revolutionaries, he would, he would call them, they lack prudence that conspiracy requires uh, to the ears of the Spaniards. They were exposed and they were of public domain. They knew those who were indifferent, the Spaniards knew who, who were indifferent to the revolutions, and they knew who were enlisted already in the revolution. We can see here that the Indios or even the Bicolanos were divided according to the loyal and faithful Bicolanos to the Spanish flag and to those who were the very organizers as what Fray Gomez would call the Machiavellian plot. And that is the reason why one of the revolutionaries uh, connected to the Katipunan, I think it would be uh, Moreno, uh, Ildefonso Moreno, I think uh, Jai will be uh, discussing this later on, he was caught uh, because somebody squealed, somebody squealed him out and therefore, he was discovered, and he was later uh, killed. He was actually um, the direct conduct to Katipunans. Early on, the um, the conspiracy was uh, easily um, discovered, and of course, 
checked. And then, of course, we, we did also discover from the account of the friar that not everyone was easily swayed to join the revolution. In fact, in Indan, they started, the revolutionaries would start waking up the people. The revolutionaries would threaten to burn the whole town if they wouldn't give them 50 men for their, uh, for their uh, revolutionary causes. The problem is the locals confronted these revolutionaries. They were shamed because of the defiance of some locals, or in fact, most of the locals. And so what the, the revolutionaries did was to went back to Daet. Not everyone was easily swayed, most especially here in... And another thing is probably, going back to that, revolutions are not romantic at all, is that one major lesson that we can learn from the big revolutions, such as, for example, the French Revolution, is that it is the people who make history. It is not a planned thing. So it's it happens. It happens. And people decide whether to, to join the whole thing or not. We can see here that the method of the revolutionaries would sometimes go offhand. Uh, there were, of course, excesses, like, for example, what uh, Fray Gomez would recall in April 17, in 1898. You know, the girls, you know, the Spanish girls learn about the plot of the rebels. What angered them was to know that they were destined to be the mockery and the scoff because of their sex. For these savages, uh, Gomez referring to the revolutionaries or insurgents, wanted no less than to celebrate an orgy in the presence of our corpses. This is according to Gomez. So putting the Spanish and the mestizas nude in their presence so that at the end of the banquet, to do this, to do with these weak persons, that which I do not want to mark here so as not to stain this paper with similar filth. Nor so that he would read this, one who would read this will become crimson in shame uh, to the face. So it's here uh, you see some of the possible excesses of revolution, and that is to the detriment of these uh, women. As we know, again, revolutions would usually catch people by surprise. It's not easily staged. So revolutions happen when the distinct concerns of many different groups, most especially here in the Philippines, we are an archipelago, so it's very hard. It would be very hard to really, you know, unite all the distinct concerns of people belonging to different ethnic groups. And coming together is not planned in advance, but produced largely by what French people call chance. So this is what historians call contingency. Let us move to the second insight that we could um, derive from the written account of this friar, which is the revolution in Bicol was not anti-friar in nature. As is commonly known, one of the earliest factors, of course, in the rise of nationalism was the policy of the Spanish government in the 19th century to eliminate the influence of Filipino secular clergy. So there was this divide between the seculars and then the regulars. When you say regulars, these are the friars because they, they follow a certain regula or, or order or law, while the secular will be those incarnated in their dioceses. Of course, their community will be the diocese itself. So like us, diocese or secular clergy. Now, during the 19th century, in the half of the 19th century, the Spanish government systematically um, uh, eliminate or impeded the secular clergy from taking over the parishes as a matter of national security. So they wanted to for the friars to take over uh, until, of course, the 
protests of Father Pedro Pelaez, Father Mariana Gomez, and Father Jose Burgos, that the beginnings of nationalism were aroused. So in a way, people would mistakenly think that it happened in all parts of the Philippines, including Bicol. But that is not true here in Bicol. So for example, um, Father John Schumacher would present to us a table of the parishes held by the friars in contrast with the secular clergy in 1898. It would reveal that for the whole Philippines, 967 parish admissions, or 16, 16% of the 967 parish were headed by a Filipino priest. Well, in the diocese, for example, um, in Caceres, for example, if one speaks specifically of the Bicol provinces, the percentage of Filipino administered parish is even higher and certainly over 50% of all the numbers of the parish, the parishes. This is very vivid that more than 50% of the parishes were held by the secular clergy. So there was not uh, much animosity against the friars here because 50% belonged to the Filipino clergy, while in Manila, 10% belonged to the secular clergy only. So 19% in Cebu, 13% in Haro, and 4% in Nueva Segovia. So it's a different uh, scenario here in Bicol. So it's 50%. Reading from the account of uh, Gomez, Fray Gomez, when the revolt broke out in Daet in April 1898, though some friars took refuge with the other Spaniards, several others in Camarines Norte remained in their parishes. Even those who had taken refuge in Daet returned to their parishes afterwards and all remained undisturbed until they felt threatened by Lukban's Tagalog forces. So you can see here that if there was a clear and present danger during the time, the friars would have fled. But no, here in Camarines Norte, for example, they did not flee. Though some of them left for Naga on the urging of the Spanish officials, others remained behind. When the Spaniards finally decided to abandon Daet, evidently hoping that other Filipinos would revenge themselves on the helpless friars uh, for these Spanish atrocities. As a matter of fact, the Filipinos recognize the difference between the friars and other Spaniards. Why is that? Because even the revolutionaries would escort the friars peacefully to Naga when they thought it best for them to go. So they did not kill them. They did not kill them. Rather, uh, they even escorted them to Naga. That's another insight from the revolution here in Bicol. People distinguish between the Spaniards, the, Sp the Spanish officials, and the friars. Revolution finally broke out in Naga itself with bloody consequences. No action was taken against any of the Spanish clergy. For example, the Vincentians uh, remained in the seminary in the, here in uh, Naga and continued to teach for some months, even after the even after the uh, break uh, breakout of the uh, revolution. Only when the armed Spanish officials uh, took refuge here uh, in the convento of uh, San Francisco were the Franciscans placed in danger because Spanish officials took refuge in their convento. And so since the revolutionaries threatened to burn the church in order to get the Spaniards out, so finally the vicar general of the diocese Fray Roman, Roman Gonzalez decided to advise them in order to avoid bloodshed, eventually arranged for the surrender of the Spaniards. It's an interesting note here why Andres Gonzalez, uh, Roman Gonzalez was calling the shots. Because by this time, the Bishop of Cáceres was already in Spain. Due to health reasons, Bishop uh, Monasterio, Arsenio Monasterio, 
uh, was already in uh, in Spain as early as June 1898 because he was already suffering from illness. So during the, the time of the revolution here in Bicol, there was no bishop around. It was only the vicar general who took over his post. And of course, uh, later on, uh, Fray Roman Gonzalez would be also captured and taken into prison. So those friars who were still in parishes in the province of Camarinsur were brought to Naga with great courtesy. And at the decision of the provisor or the vicar general, all of the clergy lived together in the seminary. So the seminary became the, um, their sort of a imprisonment uh, prison. Um, there they were joined by the vicar general himself. Fray Gonzalez's choice of the civil guard, Corporal Elias Angeles, one of the two leaders of the revolt, was welcomed with respect. So it was Fray Roman Gonzalez who suggested uh, Elias Angeles. And Gonzalez's advice continued to be sought even by the revolutionaries. Here we can find the distinction of the Bicolanos, of who were the Spanish officials and, of course, the friars. It is clear that in Camarines, not only did anti-friar feeling have no part in the origins of the revolution, but that it was respect for the friars, which at times protected the others Spaniards from ill treatment. If you would recall, Jorge Barlini, before he became a bishop, he was assigned in Sorsogon. He will be the future first Filipino bishop. General Ananias Jokno was leaving because he would like to turn over the governorship. He gave it to the priest, Father Jorge Barlin, instead of anyone else. So you see here the um, the great distinction that uh, even the, the public officials would uh, give to the, the clergy, for example. In an Albay, for example, although it was given to a committee, the Spanish governor gave it to a committee of Filipinos held, uh, headed by Anacleto Sulano, yet another priest was um, nominated, a parish priest in Albay, that is Father Victorino Peña. And uh, But later on, of course, this Filipino priest denied this nomination. There are other examples. For example, in, in the account of Ataviado, um, people would even give uh, free the, the collection of the, the parish to the friars for them to bring along with them. That is how they respected very much the, the friars. It was only during the, the, the arrival of Lukban, wherein um, the revolutionaries were noted to be Quite, quite violent. They treated the friars with a certain amount of, of harassment. Even um, Fray Roman Gonzalez would uh, request for the friars to celebrate the Mass, and Lukban, of course, would not permit them. Uh, but when Lukban uh, went off, the other local uh, officials of the, revolution, of the revolutionary government would permit these uh, friars to celebrate. So lastly, and the last insight I would uh, put uh, from this uh, account of the friar is there are cracks of facts that could be gleaned from this prejudiced friar's account. You know, even Father uh, Schumacher would tell us that this account by one of the friars who suffered imprisonment by the revolutionaries provides much information on certain aspects of the revolution in Camarines Norte and Inaga. However, the author is harsh in his judgments of Spaniards as well as of Filipinos, having written in the aftermath of his own suffering. So it will be always a prejudiced account, but nevertheless, it is an account of the revolution. In fact, he would quote much from this uh, friar's account when he wrote the religious aspects of the Philippine revolution in uh, 1990 or 1991. Well, of course, Spanish documentary sources were products of the colonial machinery, 
These were, of course, products of the Spaniards for Spanish purposes, such as evangelization and trade, for example. But learning from the experience and the ingenuity of uh, the historian William Henry Scott, most especially in his work, Cracks in the Parchments, Curtain, in other essays in Philippine history, we will be amazed on how he was able to, to catch you know, the fleeting glimpses of Filipinos. Uh, and for our purposes here, the Bicolanos, uh, their way of life, how they, they behave during the revolution, in, and their reaction to Spanish domination, in this sense, the Philippine Revolution, in a very unintentional way and merely incidental to the purpose of the document. So a document may be done for a particular purpose, but somehow we can catch some few glimpses uh, basing on this document. So I will now conclude my short sharing uh, this morning regarding this friar's account by saying that I would reiterate that once more, we would like to invite for all the Filipinos, Piculanos, to go back to the sources of our history. Well, that is now the the sickness of this generation. We are a meme culture. We wouldn't want to verify anymore the sources that we are reading, most especially from the internet. We need to go back to the sources of history. As they say, there is no history without uh, documents. So it is the advocacy and, of course, the passion of our group, Sai Sai Bicol, to link our readers or our viewers to the sources of Bicol history. For so long a time, we have contented ourselves with listening to a few Lola Bashang in our communities. Of course, with all respect to Lola. But of course, it's time to eat solid food when it comes to the history, most especially to the history of our own town, of our own region, of our own people. So we would like to invite all the researchers, uh, aficionados of Bicol history to collaborate with us in reconstructing and appreciating our past as well as our identity as Bicolanos. You can do this either by research or by contributing to our peer-reviewed journal, which will hopefully come out this September. That's an open invitation to everyone who is interested. Contact any of us, Vic and Jai. And as one historian, as I would close this talk, said history would not be worth writing or reading if it had no meaning. And where do we find the meaning? It's not in the subject themselves of the history. It's not uh, on the dramatis persone of history or in their intentions or motives, meaning is found on the reader, the one who interprets it, on the historian, the one who narrates this on how he will be able to present the past uh, from his own lenses. Thank you very much for uh, being patient with me. Thank you for listening. Let us know your thoughts about the discussion. Use the hashtag MakeItHistoric and don't forget to follow our podcast and Museo ni Jesse Robredo social media accounts. Have a great day and see you on the next episode.